Welcome to the 2020 Baby Podcast. I'm Pamela Douglas, and today I'm speaking with Honorary Associate Professor Peter Hill, academic and public health physician from the School of Public Health, the University of Queensland. Today, we discuss why it is that the COVID-19 pandemic calls for an urgent change in the way we help families care for their babies towards much more evolutionarily aligned approaches if we are to optimise developmental trajectories and minimise health system costs. So Peter, you've been really closely involved in the development of my work over the past 20 years and of course we've co-authored multiple papers. I am very concerned now with the COVID-19 pandemic for the well-being of mothers and babies and in particular very concerned about women and their babies in the first 16 weeks, the first four months of that baby's life. This is because the perinatal period anyway is a time of mental health risk, we know, for women. And we know that the first 100 days is a a period of critically injury-sensitive neuroplasticity that that the first 100 days really sets up trajectories for that baby lifelong in terms of settings of the stress response, mental health, in terms of the gut, so the immune system and metabolism, sets up trajectories long-term around behaviour. So in a period that's already for, for vulnerable families, a period of of increased risk, the um, COVID-19 pandemic, I think, will act as a magnifier. And and so I'm to call for change now in the way that we care for women and their babies towards programs that are much more aligned from an evolutionary point of view with babies' biological needs. So that's interesting, Pam. Um, but just let me clarify, what, what you're talking about here is not so much the threat of the virus itself, um, but actually the threats that come from the necessary responses, the, the public health responses that we're asking families to adopt in containing the virus. So we're actually, we've got two potential threats. You know, one is the, is the threat of the infectious threat, and the other is the, the change of environments that children need in uh, these very formative months of their lives. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's it. So in response to COVID-19 and our context now of social isolation, um, what are the implications for um, a baby's biological need for environmental enrichment? So that's one consideration. Secondly, COVID-19 certainly highlights for us how we want to be able to effectively support women to breastfeed in order to optimise that baby's immune response to, to any viral threat, even though, thankfully, it would seem that most babies who contract COVID-19 are asymptomatic. Nevertheless, it's a time when we're really wanting to strengthen our babies. Um, immune system 
trajectories right through infancy into early childhood and beyond. And then thirdly, of course, out of this enormous health system disruption visited upon us by, by the pandemic, I would think that going forward, the health system is not going to be the same, that we're going to need to look at how to put resources that will forever be shaped by the enormity of, of this pandemic response, how to put these very efficiently into primary care, one would hope, but, but also how to use them efficiently when it comes to caring for mothers and babies. Mm. So there have been enormous inefficiencies in terms of health system care post-birth. So, so that's, that's what I've been thinking. So this is really a magnification of the challenges that we face when addressing the evolutionary history of mothers and babies. That's right. So our human babies evolved in a particular evolutionary context. We could call this the environment of evolutionary adaptedness. And therefore the human organism from birth has particular, if you like, biologically hardwired expectations in an environment that had much greater exposure to the complexity, the extraordinary complexity of the outdoors world, the natural environment. I'm always saying to families, if you think of just a single tree, even though a baby can't focus on the leaves, the baby can see the complexity of play, light and shadow and, and colour variation. Single tree versus a wall. And, of course, the tree is just one tiny part of the complexity of the outdoor environmental experience and the change of air temperature on the skin and the sounds and the, the smells and, and then all that wonderful vestibular stimulation, kinesthetic stimulation, typically against a loving adult's body or a, an older child's body. So the human infant involved with the biological expectation of a great deal of postural variability from shortly after birth. And it's against that postural variability that motor development occurs. So in our society, we do try to emphasise tummy time as an opportunity for the little one to develop capacity against the force of gravity. But in the context of our environments of evolutionary adaptedness, that typically occurred by being carried or in arms with a real complexity of postural input that the little one's brain was, was constantly adapting to. There's voices in the research proposing that motor lesions, either prenatally, during birth or in the very early postnatal period, are primary for disruptions in neurodevelopment for our children. I've recently had a theoretical framing paper published that looks at our suite of programs known as neuroprotective developmental care as potential preemptive intervention for babies who are at familial risk of autism spectrum disorder. And that paper goes right back into developmental neuroscience and it talks about the primacy of these very, very early motor lesions that, that affect then movement repertoire in very early life, the first weeks of life, which impacts then on how parents interact with their babies. 
and certainly the, the kind of flat mattress surfaces and impoverished sensory environments of our homes, inside any home really, relative to you know, the external world, is going to, to not offer for these little ones who are at risk with perhaps very early tiny motor lesions the kind of feedback loops and rich environmental experiences that, that could put their developmental trajectories back on track. So if babies are inside our homes being increasingly asked to fit into sleep training, if, if the dominant approach to sleep training is also viewed as the appropriate way to be parenting a newborn or a baby in the first months of life through the pandemic, I really do fear for the developmental implications. Babies are needing incredibly rich and changing environmental input. And even if social input is no longer as multicentric as it was, we can still be focusing on that sensory motor input and one's own social engagement with the baby. That's interesting. I've been watching the way the language has progressed in our descriptions of our response to coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. Um, I mean, we, we've already made the, the discovery that social distancing doesn't describe what we're trying to achieve in physical distancing. But of course, what I'm hearing you say is that the, 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 the infant mother bond really requires both physical proximity and also the contraction of social distance, um, that intimate play of bodies together, you know, carrying and lying and rolling and sitting and so on. Um, but the other one is the whole idea of lockdown. So much of the way we talk about it is in the language of prison, um, uh, of, of sensory deprivation, of, of con containing, constraining, physically um, uh, limiting what uh, families are able to do. And I guess what you're talking about is uh, how do you break out of that prison even if you're still within the same four walls and a, and a yard if you've got one? Yes, yes. It's very important, I would argue, that families are at the very least given an alternative approach to their baby's sleep to the dominant sleep training or first-wave behavioural approaches. And let's face it, it's the first-wave behavioural approaches that are condoned by the various state governments and authorities that manage our maternal and child health services. It's repeatedly reported back to me that it's very difficult in that context for maternal and child health nurses to introduce alternative approaches to optimising sleep for families. This is a matter of urgency because we have families now confined within the home. The dominant approach to infant sleep has been demonstrated, you know, we could say in four systematic reviews, one of which you and I co-authored, but, you know, it's been demonstrated not to decrease the frequency of night waking for families, and yet that's the premise on which it's sold to families, that it will decrease frequency of night waking. There's also no reliable evidence to suggest that these sleep training approaches are improving developmental or behavioural outcomes or sleep outcomes for our children and substantial studies suggesting that that's not the case. 
And yet families are, are, are told that if they want to optimise behavioural developmental outcomes and sleep outcomes, they need to be implementing the sleep training approaches really from, from the first weeks and months of life. The sleep training approaches are very focused on avoiding what's framed as overstimulation. So um, mm. there's a problematizing of sensory stimulation, of social stimulation in a way that is very concerning to me. Yeah, I think you're right there. I mean, I'm always amazed in the work that I do internationally um, that the kinds of structures that we impose on our children from a very early age in the expectation that we'll habituate them to proper rhythms and effective sleep patterns and so on just aren't possible in most cultures. You know, when you've got whole families living in a single room or when you've got the extended family, when you've got the mother needing to take the child with her in her work, in her gardening, um, you know, in her carrying of water, in her setting up of firewood for the for the, for the night's cooking, the, those kinds of, you know, isolated, quiet, um, uh, insular uh, practices just aren't available to them. So clearly um, what we're dealing with is a very highly socialised form of management of our children and their sleeping patterns. Sorry, can you just clarify there, in these contexts of um, low-income countries or more traditional contexts, well, yeah, some of them are low-income countries, but some of them are quite sophisticated countries. So when I'm working in Vietnam, for example, um, the kind of living space that we've got here is not the same living space that families, even of uh, high-level professionals, have there. I mean, I'm thinking of one of my colleagues who holds a senior post in one of the major universe, medical universities, um, he lives with his parents and his wife and his two children, um, and they basically inhabit a three-roomed house. And um, you know, the, the 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 whole family sleeps in one room there. So the idea of being able to separate a child out into a you know a silent, darkened space uh, where there's no, uh, no 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 disruption and, and uh, the input of the environment is reduced is just impossible. And grandma certainly wouldn't accept that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and this, I fear, in combination with strategies of social distancing, physical distancing and confinement yeah. in interior spaces will actually place these babies at, at significantly increased developmental risks, especially if they're susceptible so our vulnerable babies vulnerable either through genetics or psychosocial circumstances so really what we're needing is cost-effective primary care strategies that are consistent that are evidence-based that are coming out of the frames of of evolutionary medicine and of course our, our big innovations in terms of chronic disease management are, are actually coming out of evolutionary medicine frames now. This needs to be the same with the care of women and babies. You know, I've had people stand up in conferences and say, but we're not Kung Bushmen. And this is an incredibly outdated approach to anthropology. We're certainly not Kung Bushmen. We live in very complex 
contemporary worlds, but in fact the baby is a creature born out of an environment of evolutionary adaptedness. And we make life so much harder, so much harder for families than it needs to be if we're unable to work with that baby's biology. That, though, means in our complex world where there are complex and indeed systemic obstacles to that that synchrony between a parent and baby, that we need sets of clinical skills to get in there to affect repair, whether it's breastfeeding, whether it's for the baby who's screaming, whether it's the, the severe sleep deprivation and disrupted nights. We need effective clinical skills to support that synchrony between parent and baby. And then life becomes easy, so much easier. It becomes easy and enjoyable. And we're not ramping up health system costs in these completely unacceptable ways that have been normalised in the care of mothers and babies prior to this pandemic. Well, thanks for listening. It's been great to have your company. And remember to check out the non-profit website, possumsonline.com, for lots of free resources and programs and the publications that form the evidence base to neuroprotective developmental care or the possums programs. As together, we grow joy in early life. I hope you tune in again soon. Bye for now.